You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, welcome to Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Brock. Let me uh, start this episode by throwing you a few phrases. Have you heard of hospital at home, telehealth, of course you've heard of that, remote care, patient self-care, continuous monitoring? Do you sense a theme here? As ERs and clinics were overrun by COVID patients over the past few years, providers had to move fast to find ways to provide medical care without the patient ever visiting the office. And so many people stepped up to the plate for that. If there ever were a silver lining to all this, though, it's the remarkable advancement of remote care delivery likely to become a permanent fixture in healthcare. Today, we look at just two of the myriad of amazing developments in remote care. Our first guest tells us about the doctors and patients working together to monitor medical conditions continuously, remotely. Our second guest guides care teams on their quality journey, which has of late included a virtual hospital concept. It's true, folks. The future is here, and it's going to help millions in the years to come. So now for our first guest on this podcast, of course, we've talked about remote care before and hospital at home briefly. And what we've found, in addition to the satisfaction patients get from staying in their own homes, is an increasing number seem to take stronger ownership of their treatment, their medications, and their overall well-being. That brings us to our guest today. Dr. Sally Friedman is a chief endocrinology fellow at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. Dr. Friedman is an expert in the use of continuous glucose monitoring. She's been working on it with the Medical Learning Institute, or MLI. MLI, in turn, is now working with NCQA on a continuing medical education program about diabetes and mealtime insulin. So Dr. Friedman joins us today with an update on advances in mealtime insulin monitoring and the overall progress in diabetes treatment and self-monitoring of patients at home. Dr. Friedman, welcome to Inside Healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Let's talk about uh, diabetes. This is uh, a specialty for you, uh, clearly. And um, uh, and it is a growing, well, tell, tell us about that. It, it continues to be a problem plaguing this country. It's a growing um, you hate to use the word epidemic, but it is it is growing that way. Certainly. And, and, you know, it is an epidemic. We see increasing number of patients every year, and it's tied very tightly to increasing rates of obesity here in the United States and across the world with increasing rates of um, insulin resistance. Folks, you know, their pancreas just aren't producing as much insulin as they're needing. You have two issues here, doctor. First of all, you have one where a lot of people are walking around with diabetes or pre-diabetes and don't even know it. Then you have many patients with, with um, type one and type two um, who are treated with insulin and who are still not meeting the numbers they need to meet. Why are, are all of these things happening? First of all, why are people not finding out they have it. And then second, if they do and they're treating it, why aren't we closing these gaps? 
the treatment of diabetes poses a real challenge. You have the environment of what happens in clinic and the plan that you set forth to help kind of improve A1C, prevent adverse microvascular and macrovascular outcomes. But then you have the whole world of what happens when patients leave clinic. So you're dealing with how do we optimize treatment regimens, but then you have to deal with the fact that, you know, patients live their lives when they leave the, when they leave the clinic room, there's barriers to effective lifestyle modifications when they get home. And there's barriers to enacting that plan that you set forth in clinic. And so you have to kind of maximize all of those things, set the patient up for success outside of the, outside of the clinic. And like I said, there's a lot of barriers. And that's, uh, and that's what we're trying to do here is close one of those barriers down. When we talk about mealtime insulin and uh, I am counted among the many who had never heard of mealtime insulin until I heard about you. Tell us about it. So I think when talking about insulin and the difference between long acting and these short acting insulins, it's really important to take a huge step back and just think about diabetes in general, the pathophysiology and kind of how a normal pancreas works. Because when we treat diabetes, essentially what we're trying to do is mimic what the pancreas does when it's functioning normally. So generally um, in the fasting state, so in a person who has not eaten recently, the function of insulin is essentially to match what the liver is spitting out in terms of glucose and then help uptake that glucose into the tissues that need it, like muscles and fat tissue. So you essentially are trying to kind of strike a balance where you're not having increasing or decreasing blood sugar in the fasting state. In the fed state, after you eat a meal and your blood glucose starts to rise pretty rapidly, your insulin very quickly kicks out a huge slug of insulin and kind of counteracts that helps you absorb the nutrients that you are eating and then settle you out at a normal blood glucose. So when you think of diabetes, that whole process is disrupted. And in type one, you have an absolute insulin deficiency where you automatically need long acting insulin to help keep things stable in the uh, fasting state. And you need prandial insulin or mealtime insulin to help combat those rising blood glucose levels after you eat a meal. Type two diabetes can be a little bit different where you have more of a relative deficiency of insulin. You are able to make some, so you may need just a basal um, or maybe even not insulin at all and just treat with some oral agents that encourage the pancreas to kick out as much insulin as it can. But essentially you're trying to make sure that in the fasting state, things stay stable. And that when you eat a meal, you can get some insulin release as well and prevent very high postprandial glucose readings. So when, when treating, those are your main goals and it may require one or both types of insulin. And, but there is a key component to, to using this, uh, this protocol, using this treatment, and that is continuous glucose monitoring. Uh, that is tracking your sugar all the time. Absolutely. Uh, 
that that tell us how that tool works in this process. Sure. I think, you know, the main thing the the main benefit of continuous glucose monitoring, certainly from a patient facing standpoint, is it gives you an abundance of information. So this recall is a sensor that goes on the skin, enters the subcutaneous space, and it is constantly sampling that interstitial fluid glucose level. So you can either have continuous monitoring where you get a number all the time or where you have to scan and then it gives you a blood glucose reading. So this gives you a ton of information versus only getting a reading when you do a finger stick, which many people are hesitant to do multiple times per day for obvious reasons. So you get a ton of information. I mentioned from the patient facing side to start, this can be incredibly empowering for patients. They can take a look at how their blood glucose trend changes in response to specific types or amounts of food, in response to stress, in response to fasting, in response to exercise. So this really helps them to know how they may need to self-manage their diabetes at home, how they may need to tinker a little bit with their mealtime dose if they see that particular foods really uh, cause their blood glucose to rise pretty expeditiously or um, in contrast, how it falls when patients exercise and how they may need to start at a higher, start their exercise at a higher blood glucose level to prevent hypoglycemia. So they get a ton of information from that standpoint. The other huge benefit that we're picking up on lately is in our patients who may not have awareness of hypoglycemia. So they may not get symptoms of, uh, you know, tremor, sweatiness, shakiness, confusion as their blood sugar starts to drop because they've been low for a prolonged period of time. This CGM can give them alerts. It can say, Hey, you're low right now, or you're heading towards being low at a pretty quick rate and can help them know when to treat. So from a patient side, they get a huge amount of information from a physician side. You also get a lot of different information. Um, when you take a look at those CGM reports, it will not only tell you where the average blood glucose has been over the period of time that your patient's been wearing the CGM, but it will also give you the very, very valuable time and range, which is essentially a percentage of the time that the patient has spent with their blood glucose reading between a defined range. So the large majority of the time that's, uh, you know, 80 to 180, 70 to 180. And that gives you perhaps even more information than the hemoglobin A1C, because you can imagine that very different glucose profiles can give you very similar hemoglobin A1C. So you may have somebody who oscillates only between, you know, hundred and 140 and their hemoglobin A1C is the same thing as somebody who oscillates between 40 and 240. As long as that mean glucose is the same, the hemoglobin A1C is going to look exactly the same. So that time and range can be really informative because patients who are really high and really low are at higher risks of complications and poor outcomes from hypoglycemia than is somebody who really is more steady. Mm. I think we've shared it on the show before. I suffered from endocarditis, had to have uh open heart surgery and replace a heart valve because the infection destroyed my mitral heart valve. So I have a replacement during that time, uh, doc, I know you don't know this. They, uh, uh, were treating me for prediabetes and diet and type two. Mm -hmm. I have since you should be proud of me. I have since been removed from all drugs. Yeah, I'm proud of you. <laughs> and all, yeah, I, I took care of that cause I just didn't, 
uh, and because I could, and because I didn't like taking, you know, all the medicine. But one thing that happened during that was that I did use continuous glucose monitoring and began to understand how my body works and those sort of, um, what I think you are referring to are those spikes, right. In um, in, uh, in your sugar levels. And um, I found it very uh, almost competitive doctor um, to keep it in the range. Like it became sort of a competitive thing for me. Is that something I think that's an added bonus of con- continuous glucose monitoring. I think for some folks not knowing what happens between meals can um, maybe provide some, some false confidence, but I'll tell you, I'm kind of, I consider myself in the same party as you. We, as part of our fellowship, get to wear them as well. And I found myself doing the same thing saying, Hey, I don't like that rise. I uh, got to do a little exercise now. So I found it inspiring as well, but it can, you know, on the flip side, it can also be incredibly overwhelming. So I think talking to your patient, finding out which camp they may be in can be helpful before you think about uh, setting them up with a CGM. It is also worth noting that uh, NCQA just released a white paper uh, that uh, was uh formulated and authored by a group at our digital quality summit. And one of their recommendations uh, for diabetes care uh, in the United States is improved measurement that could include continuous glucose monitoring. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I mean, I think the more data we have, the more empowered we are to help patients target specific changes in their treatment regimen to achieve goals. And we know, uh, probably similar to the paper you're mentioning, we have data that suggests that A1C is lowered in patients who use continuous glucose monitors. So we're you know, able to demonstrate that in many cases, having this extra information does help us target treatment, target behavioral changes, lifestyle changes that really benefit patients. Well, that uh, that white paper is influencing some changes at NCQA. We'll certainly bring them to you on this show as they become, uh, as they develop and become official. But um, expect some big news in that front in the next couple of weeks. Talk to us, Doc, about primary care uh, physicians and clinicians and diabetes specialists and how best they can work together and perhaps how best um, the clinicians can make sure that they're working well together. Absolutely. I think this is a huge, huge part of of my job as a specialist is keeping the highways of communication open between uh, myself and the primary care providers of my patients. I think the more we talk to one another, the better the care we provide for our patients. Um, in many instances, primary care physicians have longstanding established relationships with their patients. They've gotten to know them well over time, perhaps even some of their family members and family dynamics. So they can give a ton of insight into what motivates our patients, what prevents them from achieving their goals, what's their support system, what's their home life like, who helps take care of them at home. All of that is incredibly helpful to us in thinking about how can we be most successful? How can we set patients up for success at home? And in turn, I try and recall that when primary care physicians are sending their patients to me, it's often 
for the expertise that, that I have from having this narrower range and narrower um, area of expertise. I have access to perhaps more, um, more recent guidelines coming out of our professional societies, the most up-to-date data regarding indications for new classes of medications and more um, training on technologies. And a lot of times these new technologies are, you know, they're wonderful, but they do require specialized training. And it's difficult to, it's difficult to take that on when you have so many other responsibilities. So as a specialist, I have that time and kind of bandwidth to be trained. And that's so why I always try and think about, you know, what can I offer patients who have been referred to me that maybe um, hasn't been feasible out of a primary care clinic and kind of comment on, on those things. You know, there is certainly a um, equity component to diabetes. Um, we, we know, uh, and we know certain um, backgrounds are, are more likely to suffer from diabetes. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. This is a really, really important question. One, because as you're mentioning, we do see higher rates of diabetes in some of these ethnic populations. We also know that a lot of these populations have higher rates of complications and adverse outcomes. So they, you know, we definitely have a lot of room for improvement in, in caring for these populations. I think a lot of what ends up, you know, a lot of what we think of when we have this discussion is, you know, dietary intake, lifestyle changes, how this differs in these populations and how we can best target our interventions to be, to be effective. And I think most importantly, and I'll always submit a plug for this in any question is you have to talk to the patient. You have to understand who they are, what their values are, what their traditions are, what their family life looks like. And with respect to how this affects diabetes, a lot of times that is in what they're eating at home, what their traditional foods are. So I like to ask, I'll do a meal breakdown. What does a typical breakfast, lunch, or dinner look like for you? What makes up those meals? And then a lot of times these foods can be very carbohydrate dense and we have to think about how we can address that. And I think very importantly, perhaps the most important thing we can keep in mind is not to uh, devalue these food items because I think patients are already having this kind of pull between their personal, familial, traditional um, food choices and then kind of maintaining this either carb controlled or low carb diet um, that we talk about in clinic. So knowing, first of all, what they're eating at home is, is incredibly important, not devaluing anything they tell you they're eating a lot, and then working with them, talking with them to figure out what the best strategy can be. You have to find something that's sustainable. And a lot of times that sustainability is based in the values and preferences of the patient. So employing all of that, putting it all together to create solutions can be incredibly helpful. Um, most importantly, I'd say you never tell somebody they can't eat something that makes up a large dietary stable of their heritage. I think you can use strategies like talking about quantity of foods, the preparation of foods. And then we use in our clinic a lot, the plate method where you consider hundred percent of a plate, say 50% of that should be made up by a non-starchy vegetable. 25% of that can be your carb and then 25% should be a lean protein. So that I think kind of gives um, patients and gives us a concept to work with a framework that we can help, you know, we can keep eating the same things, but we change the 
amount that we're eating or how, how we prepare that. And then, and thinking again about kind of the, um, the primary care physician and endocrinologist relationship, I think we should keep in mind as endocrinologists that a lot of the benefit of coming in to see a dedicated endocrinologist in a diabetes clinic is we have a multidisciplinary team um, consisting of diabetes educators. We have nutritionists as well. So I think as much as we can employing nutritionists and diabetes educators in these types of discussions can be incredibly helpful. I think in, if you're ever going to tell a patient, you know, we're going to ask you to eat um, a, you know, significantly decreased amount of X, Y, or Z, it's nice to be able to give them alternate uh, alternatives, other options, things they can use to help kind of fill, fill that gap. The topic today, everyone, is mealtime insulin, using it to can control glucose in a better way for treating diabetes. Doctor, thank you for being here. But before you go, I'd like you to tell us where we can get more information on this if it interests us, if we think it might be the right answer for us or our patients. Absolutely. So I have actually been working with the Medical Learning Institute um, on an online kind of activity learning session called Strategies to Improve Glucose Control Using Mealtime Insulin. And this is available for anybody to access online. And I've found that it's been incredibly helpful in terms of thinking about different types of insulins, when it might be appropriate to use one type of insulin over another type of insulin. And this, like I said, is available online. I can give you that website here. It's lms.mli ace.org. And like I said, that strategy is to improve glucose control using mealtime insulin. And we'll put that web address uh, in the description of the podcast so that uh, if you want to link to it, follow it, you can find it there. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sally Friedman. We appreciate it and appreciate the new information about mealtime insulin. Very good. Thank you so much for having me. Endocrinologist Dr. Sally Friedman. Dr. Friedman works with the Medical Learning Institute on a 90-minute online activity titled Strategies to Improve Glucose Control with Mealtime Insulin. You can access that module by going to lms.mliace.org. And now for our second guest and future quality talk speaker, Dr. Eliza Pippa Schumann is the chief medical officer of Medically Home, the world's first virtual hospital. Medically Home is a tech-enabled clinical enterprise that provides the necessary capabilities to safely shift medical care from hospitals to patients' homes. Dr. Schumann also leads the Center for Healthcare Innovation at Atrius Health, where she's charged with identifying, testing, and implementing novel care delivery solutions as part of the large independent multi-specialty medical group in the Northeast. We're happy to have her here ahead of her appearance at our Quality Talks on April 21st. Dr. Schumann, welcome to Inside Healthcare. And let me ask you right off the bat, what is a virtual hospital? You know, we think about it's a hybrid model, right? There's a huge virtual component, but patients are receiving a lot of um, services and interventions and care at the bedside. It's just that we're taking that traditional, you know, bedside nurse and attending physician and specialists, and we're virtualizing those. So patients have access to that care team 24 seven, 
Um, but there's still quite a bit happening at the bedside. And so that's why we, I always want to make that distinction. Because if you say virtual hospital, people think nothing's happening at the bedside and they wonder how that works. Um, and so, you know, sometimes we say virtual home hospital are really trying to um, make the descriptor clear. So what led to your interest in virtual care? I have always wanted to be a primary care physician since the time I knew I wanted to go into medicine, which was a, at a very young age. And I ended up becoming a family physician, which was a perfect match for my interests. I love procedures and I love office visits. I love all ages. Um, and I particularly gravitated towards older patients, um, really over age 65. I had the wonderful opportunity in my residency program uh, to do a geriatric house call program with one of my mentors, which was terrific experience and really opened up my eyes to how really wonderful geriatric care could be. And all of these experiences, you know, really combined together um, into me having a primary care practice mostly focused on older patients and also working in different environments such as the uh, hospital, seeing patients in the hospital, uh, seeing patients in the skilled rehab facilities and seeing patients at home. And that idea of, you know, full spectrum family practice in that I'm seeing patients throughout the continuum, I wasn't doing OB or anything like that. Over time, you begin to realize as you're looking at, as, you, as you're practicing medicine, that we have set up our medical health system to be very much based on what's convenient for practice, for the providers, for uh, the operation. So patients are asked to come to the office, usually between eight and five on a weekday. Um, and if they don't have transportation, we really just expect someone to drive them. And, and for older patients, that's often a, a, a family member, a child or a friend or a neighbor. Because um, when older patients aren't feeling well, they often don't want to drive themselves. And so you start to realize, well, how could we shift this, the center of the care system so that it wasn't so facility-based. And where, you know, what are other ways that we can provide care? The home is one of them. And, but there's also opportunities to provide care when patients want it. As part of my work in the Innovation Center at Atrius Health, we did a lot of interviews of patients of all ages. And very consistently, patients talked about the desires to be known by their healthcare system, to get help when they have a problem, you know, not three days later or a week later, but when they're having the problem and to have as much care happen in their home or in their local environment as possible, like to maintain their daily life and not have huge interruptions to it. Now, it seems kind of odd that my interest in home care would lead to my interest in virtual care, but you start to realize there's a lot of ways to provide care to people in their homes and outside of facilities and using technology is one terrific way to do that. So as we began to develop our uh, home-based same-day urgent care and all the way up through our home-based hospital and um, ED in the home, we realized that using the tool of virtual care of, you know, for us, it was cameras and tablets um, and being able to take a clinician in the home and link them back or tether them back to a physician in the practice we actually could have that physician see lots more patients than if they were driving around in a car and we could expand the use of the healthcare system you know, to more and more um, practitioners, including nurses, paramedics, community health workers, et cetera. And so I really 
got interested in virtual care because it's this idea that you can put care where the patient is rather than making the patients come to us. And that inherently makes patients more engaged in their care. And for me, when I think about what's exciting about primary care, what I loved about family medicine is how can you create a care plan that works in that patient's daily life, whether it's their family system or just in their own daily experience and using technology to be able to see into their world, into their home, to see what's on the walls and the tables and who's around. It helps me make a care plan that will fit in with their lifestyle rather than them having to fit in with what I think is right. Where are you with the rollout of uh, the virtual hospital and what are your measures of success? So home hospital supported by virtual technology, and we kind of call that the virtual hospital, is really expanding broadly. There's the groups that I'm involved in. But in fact, because of the public health emergency and the payment flexibilities that CMS allowed as part of that, making home a place that you could receive hospital care, this kind of model is expanding really rapidly. And we're now seeing programs in 34 states uh, representing almost 100 different health systems across the country. You know, my organization, we are currently in uh, 12 states and soon to be more. There's a real hunger to be expanding this home hospital care for lots and lots of reasons. A, because patients love it and it's really good for patients. And once a patient's experienced the home hospital and the virtual home hospital, if they come to the hospital again, they're actually requesting that care. We have one of our partners that just admitted the wife of a husband who had been in the home hospital, the virtual home hospital, several months ago. And when she fell ill, she asked for it in the emergency department. So patients are really wanting this. The other piece is that hospitals and health systems are realizing that having virtual hospitals, having this home capacity allows them to flex up and down their own capacity. So they're not so constrained. Patients don't have to wait as long in the ER. They can actually have an entire virtual floor um, that really allows them to expand beds uh, when they need it. And during the pandemic with the various surges, that was especially important. But I think we see that important, you know, extending beyond and outside the pandemic as well. In which parts of the country would this concept work most effectively? When we started with our home hospital using virtual technology, I will admit we were certainly starting in larger urban centers with surrounding suburbs. And you, it makes sense that this works, right? Because all of the rapid response uh, services or the supply chain services you need can be relatively thickly concentrated in that area. As we grew with our experience and with our programs, we started stretching out from the original centers out into more rural areas. So we have a program, for instance, in Southwest Wisconsin or in um, Oregon, where in Oregon, it started in the Portland metro area. But as you get out, you know, pretty quickly, it gets pretty rural. And starting to see what were changes that we needed to make for rural care to work. And then what are actually the real advantages to how you could do this in a rural environment? So I'm actually most excited right now in thinking about delivering virtual hospital care into rural communities that so often lack access. Now, it does mean that we have to solve barriers in some places of connectivity. Uh, Our connectivity in rural areas really varies. Um, It also means that we are making use of, again, that bigger healthcare team 
um, which includes not just nurses and physicians, but also you know, community paramedics and other uh, members of the healthcare team to expand that scope of service. And so we're really excited about what we can do in rural communities in addition to where we've uh, been in kind of the urban and suburban areas. Which fields of medicine or medical specialties could use a virtual hospital most effectively? I'm an enthusiastic evangelist of virtual hospitals. So whenever people ask me who could benefit most, who could use this the most, my first answer is everybody. (laughs) Um, Certainly there are real advantages for patients who have um, kind of, I don't want to say run of the mill, but traditional, you know, acute exacerbations of chronic disease or, um, uh, you know, are on the typical medical surgical floor because of issues that require treatment such as heart failure, exacerbation, um, you know, infections and such. We started to realize there were certain specialties that really lended themselves quite well to participating in this virtual hospital model. You know, infectious disease is a good one, right? So we could follow cultures and work with them and they could see patients at a distance. But that's actually been expanding. And one of the, the biggest groups of people that are really quite excited about this are actually surgeons. So patients postoperatively can actually go home, recover at home. They're more active. Uh, they tend to recover a little bit faster, we think. And the surgeon has the ability to check in and we can monitor for you know, the most likely um, complications of surgery. You know, we're still sending people into the home, but we have the ability to watch wounds and do diagnostics, et cetera. And so even though I didn't think such a hands-on specialty would be as enthusiastic, they really are pushing boundaries in ways that are are very, very exciting. The other area that we are really expanding quickly in, and you're seeing a lot of activity across the country is in oncology. You know, knowing that cancer patients so frequently have such frequent visits to hospitals, urgent care, um, even the ambulatory settings, if we can remove some of that and be able to provide some of that care at home, you know, better experience, uh, less hospital days, more days spent um, outside of facilities. So I think those are the areas that we're really seeing a lot of enthusiasm. Um, As the technology and the ability to do, um, you know, portable diagnostics improves, I think that will expand uh, greatly. And certainly we have, you know, we've had all manner of consultations um, uh, in the virtual hospital, which has been really, truly exciting. So what are some of the general limitations or challenges to providing virtual healthcare delivery? There are two big limitations to the virtual hospital this time. The first one is the inequity we see with Um, connectivity and and broadband internet uh, wireless service uh, in different areas of the country. This particularly affects uh, rural communities, but there are other communities as well that have very poor connectivity. And and that makes it difficult if you're, you know, our virtual hospital obviously depends on the ability to uh, be able to connect at a distance. Now we bring connectivity to the patient, but if there's no ability to get a signal or to connect into a network, um, you know, we can't safely care for, for that patient. And so we've been really working on alternate technologies for areas where connectivity might be difficult. And so that's one big limitation. The other one is going to sound a little bit obvious, but I think it's, it's one that we really should consider, which is that, you know, people who um, do not have stable housing or who are homeless can't generally take advantage of um, programs like this, right? Because we requ- we need them to live somewhere that has, you know, consistent electricity and running water and access to a bathroom, things like that. You know, 
can we think about other ways that patients could have a site where they could get some respite and we could provide more virtual care services um, so, that, so that really the broadest group of people has access um, as possible. And, and again, that's something that we're, we're working on. We're thinking about with health systems um, that have uh, you know, larger numbers of, pop, of vulnerable patients in their population. But those are the two main limitations is you, know, you, you do need to have a place that you are domiciled and um, the connectivity challenges in certain areas of the country. How have you incorporated facility-based testing like x-rays or MRIs? Many people are surprised at the amount of diagnostic testing we can actually do in the home. So most plain film x-ray, ultrasound, lab work, all of that can be done safely in the home. And we take advantage of all of those technologies um, as much as possible. Where we start to have to think about bringing patients in to receive a diagnostic is really anything that requires an interventional radiologist, which makes sense, right? It's procedural based, but also even just um, CAT scans or MRIs. You know, those technologies are increasingly becoming portable, at least CAT scan. There's um, areas where they're putting them in, in ambulances, but generally when patients need, you know, advanced diagnostics or, you know, something up from an ultrasound or an x-ray, we will bring them back to um, a bricks and mortar facility, get the image that we require, and then they can be transported home. It's not an exclusion from being able to participate in the home hospital. It just means that we have to transport patients back and forth. And we're seeing health systems begin to adapt uh, elements of their of their virtual home hospital into the bricks and mortar hospital because in the virtual hospital, I know, for instance, that when patients push the equivalent of the call button, a person, a human, <laughs> answers that in less than 15 seconds. Dr. Eliza Pippa Schumann on the virtues of the virtual hospital. And she's one of our amazing speakers at Quality Talks 2022. So sign up today, qualitytalks.org. It's April 21st. You can attend online or in person right here in D.C. Now we bring you to something new. We're calling it Matt's Facts, a few healthy facts you should know. It's Nutrition Month every March and Minority Health Month each April. So we thought we'd combine them since we're right on the turn of the month. The National Center for Health Statistics did a nationwide study on obesity just a few years ago. Looking at the prevalence of obesity among various populations, 47% of Hispanic and non-Hispanic Black adults were identified as obese. That compares to nearly 38% of non-Hispanic white adults. Women had a higher prevalence for obesity than men among non-Hispanic Black, non-Hispanic Asian, and Hispanic adults, but not among non-Hispanic white adults. Obesity prevalence was lower among non-Hispanic Asian men and women compared with other populations. NCQA, of course, works on both issues, but we're really focused on equity right now, reflected in our new health equity accreditation programs. You should check them out on our website. Some upcoming NCQA events to remind you of. Of course, there's our annual quality talks, April 21st, online or in person at the Hamilton Hotel in our nation's capital. Register today at qualitytalks.org. 
Our quality innovation series is starting. Lots of presentations and trainings for you over a number of weeks. Special pricing is available at ncqa.org, but only until April 3rd. So sign up today. Just search education. You'll find it. And we're looking forward both to our annual Digital Quality Summit in mid-July, as well as a new event, our Health Innovation Summit. It's a week-long event featuring quality and care innovators from throughout the healthcare world. Here's where I'd normally say save the date, but it begins on Halloween, so that's pretty easy. Now, that's not too hard to remember. As we say every time, we want to hear from you. Email us anytime at communications at ncqa.org with all your questions and comments. Here's your topic for this episode. How has virtual care affected you in the past two years? You can talk about your practice, your office, or even your own home life. Let us know your thoughts on all this. That's communications at ncqa.org. That's it for this episode of NCQA's Inside Healthcare. If you like this episode, if you learned something new, go listen to others, other episodes. Help spread the word about the podcast, and let's see how we can grow this audience even more before summer. For producer Dave Smaller and all of us here at Inside Healthcare, thanks for joining us. I'm Matt Brock. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.